Welcome to the Wealthy Wealthy Wise podcast. If you would like to listen in on thought-provoking conversations with countercultural thought leaders and experts in the fields of wealth, health, and relationships, the three keys to having what I call a wealthy, wealthy life, then this is the show for you. I'm Christina Wise, real estate investor, best-selling author, falling for money, and founder of Wealthy Wealthy, where I serve as your personal guide to money, health, and happiness. Welcome back. This is Christina Wise, your host. In this episode, I interview Mike Michalowicz. I've been wanting to talk with Mike for a long time as he's a favorite business author of mine. So talking to him in real life was a total blast. And he didn't disappoint. He's every bit of awesome that I thought he would be. I took a full page of notes for myself. Mike is an author of six, now going on seven best-selling books, including my favorite, Profit First. He's launched several multi-million dollar businesses. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and a former makeover specialist on MSNBC. He's known as the guy who challenges outdated business beliefs. And since you know I'm all about busting antiquated mindsets, this talk had me captured. Mike gives tons of business tips, so if you're an aspiring or seasoned entrepreneur, you'll want to listen in. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Michalowicz. Mike, I am so looking forward to today's conversation. Thank you for being here with me today. Oh, it's a joy to be here. I, I appreciate you doing this. Awesome. And I love your backdrop. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. Clearly, this guy is not promoting himself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, I do love how all your books are displayed like that. That, And it makes me think, I mean, I've, I'm, I've written one book and how hard it was to write one book and go through oh, the yeah. process. So how many have you written? I've written six, and uh, I'm, I have my seventh going to my publisher. Well, it's funny. This this morning. You can't see off camera here, but I'm, I'm working on every day I do. But uh, it'll go to my publisher in about three more weeks. But believe it or not, it won't come out till 2020. That's how publishers roll. It's a slow process. Wow. Well, congratulations. Well, Thank we you. can dig into a little bit of each of them. The one Where I want to start first, I know you have uh, your latest – is your latest book before the one that's coming out in 2020? Is that Clockwork? Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. So I want to get there because there's so much that I want the audience to listen to come out of that book. But before there, what I am is I'm a, I'm a financial author, money coach, consultant. I really teach money mastery, money principles, laws, mechanics, but mostly on the personal finance side. I teach people mm. what to do with their money after they make it because mm. some people are great at making it, but then they don't know what to do after they make it. So they spend it all, right? And then they are, yeah, yeah. they're caught in the trap. Well, part of what I teach and the ideas I teach in the personal finance side, it's think of your household as your business, like household finance, run it just like the business. And what we want to do is we want to take all businesses we know, and most of my audience are entrepreneurs, business owners, that type of thing. So in business, we know it's all about the game of profit. So if we think of our household in the business, the same thing, I want to teach you business concepts and business financial concepts for your household as a business. That's the way we're going to run it to build wealth. Well, what we need to do though, is we need to do profit first. So yeah. I've been teaching that and I've just loved that oh. when I came across your work and people, so many people said, have you heard of profit first? Have you heard <laughs> of Mike? And so I've heard your name so many times over the years. So it's a real honor to be here. And I want to really dig into your concept of profit first when really it comes to the business because people don't pay themselves first. And many business owners, small business owners, they're just not making money. So I, I'd love for you to talk about like your philosophy and your like the practical pieces of the profit first concept. I wish I knew you back then, Christina, because I, uh, I had made some money, but didn't really understand the difference between making money and actually taking or, or retaining money. So I blew it all on like stupid things too, like uh, trophy things, like a big house, lots of cars. 
and evaporated money within like years. So it, it is a process. It is a discipline. What I found is for entrepreneurs, um, often they never even get to the making money part because every penny that comes into the business also evaporates. It goes away so quickly. And uh, what I thought was there was something maybe fundamentally flawed with me because this is what I struggled with for years too. Uh, and I discovered this is a problem for many entrepreneurs. But what confounded me is we as business owners can attract prospects, deliver our services, market ourselves, um, manage employees or virtual help. Like we can figure out hundreds, not if not thousands of pieces of our business, but there's one piece almost none of us get, which is profit. So I thought, oh my gosh, there must be a, a developmental issue in all us entrepreneurs. Like there's something missing in our brain, but that can't be true. And then I figured out what I believe to be the root cause problem. It's not us. It's the formula we've been trained. And, and the foundational formula for all business, it's the profit formula, is sales minus expenses equals profit. It is taught, Christina, in thousands of accounting books. Every college course in the world, every entrepreneur in your conversa in conversation even says, how's your profit? How's your bottom line? How's the year end looking? The fundamental flaw of that formula is logically it makes sense. I get logic. But behaviorally, it doesn't consider how we as behavioral animals work. And when something comes last, it means it's insignificant. It's not important. Like, Christine, I could never imagine saying, you know, how important is your family? And you saying, oh, my family, they come last. Or what, what do you think about your health? Ah, oh, my health comes last. Like, that's absurd. My family comes first. My health comes first. What is priority comes first. What is insignificant comes last. And it's even the vernacular that we use, like bottom line, like we don't, we bottom feeder, like that comes to mind. Like, you know, that's a very negative connotation. Um, year end means it's not significant. So most entrepreneurs believe, and I did, that profit is an event as in an eventuality, but it never happens. Profit is a habit. We need to bake it into the business. So I teach them profit first. It's a real simple principle. It's the pay yourself first principle. I'm not an inventor or something wild here. It's always existed. I just saw that was never being applied in business. So it's the pay yourself first principle. Take your profit first in business. And how it works in execution is every time we have a sale, we immediately take a predetermined percentage of that income and hide it away from the business. Pay yourself first in the business. Categorize as profit. Run the business off the remainder. And that little change, when I'm flipping the flipping the formula now, it's sales minus profit equals expenses. That little subtle change, which seems so simple, has a radical impact on bringing permanent profitability to businesses. Well, and it just, it's funny that you say that because even the way I'm teaching my overall model, for example, I break it up into three pieces. It's your earnings means your business, it's your household business, and it's your balance sheet, which is our asset income and ultimately passive income. So these three different parts, but the way I teach it is that we generate profit really that's what's left over, right? But we take the profit from our business and we put our profit in our household business and we pay ourselves first there. But you're exactly right. That's flawed thinking. Why am I not saying the same thing on the business? Take yeah. profit out first in your business, move that over profit first in your household and then build your balance sheet. But I'm still working the other way as well. You know, there's a saying, maybe you've heard this, that when we start a business, it's a parent-child relationship. As a business owner, you give life to your business. I call bullshit on that term. I mean, it, it's a, it makes sense like, oh, yes, I give life to my business. I support it and nurture it. And one day it'll come back and feed me. But that's not the reality, especially if you have teenagers like I do. At a certain point, they get out of the house and they do not come back and serve you. Like that's not their mission. They have their own lives to live. 
I don't think a relationship with our business is parent-child. I think it's that of conjoined twins. When we start a business, we are lockstep. We share critical organs. We share a soul. Everything is shared. And as the business goes, so do we. If we have um, an, a poor fiscal management in our business, I don't care how well you're doing at home. If you're not bus- managing your business finances well, it will impact your home. And the reverse is true too. You can have a flourishing business tearing off profit, but if all that profit comes into your house and you're burning through that cash, again, it's killing the other entity. So we have to see ourselves in lockstep with our business. As the business goes, so do we. As we go, so does the business. Yeah, uh, that just makes so much sense. And I love this. I'm actually going to start teaching a little bit differently based on this conversation. Because right, even if I'm teaching the concept of run your household exactly as a business, then that would just be it. They really do need to be identical. And the financial yeah. system or the, you know, the financial accounting really is the same in business and house. We just have different terminology that makes it confusing for a lot of people. But I just love this idea. Just no profit first across the board. So, um, yeah, love it. What else? So when, when you're just saying, so are you saying take a percentage of sales? So if I make a hundred thousand dollars in sales this month and 10% is coming off the top or whatever percent I'm paying myself, whatever my profit margin ultimately, is it, is the concept meaning you're paying yourself the full amount? You're just taking a certain percentage and then there might still be profit left over that you're working it, towards. Like, is there more to the model? Yeah, there is more to the model. Um, but, but you hit the core of it. I mean, literally is that simple um, at the essence of it. It is a predetermined percentage, but there are stages we have to go through. So um, the first stage to answer your question directly is that percentage is a dynamic percentage on a growth side, meaning I we start businesses usually a very low percentage because we look at their history. And I'll tell you, there's an SBA study, 83% of small business, that's defined by the SBA as a company that does $25 million in revenue or less. That's absolutely my business. Maybe it's yours. I suspect as many people listening in. The, the vast majority of business on our globe is small business. 83% of us are in check-to-check survival, meaning there's not enough money to pay rent or payroll or whatever upcoming expenses without a significant sales effort this month. It's constantly paddling to stay above water and um, let alone pay ourselves. Like the entrepreneur rarely plays themselves or the ultimate sacrificial lamb. So what we do is we look at the history of a business and say, well, what kind of profit have you been turning out? And and let me qualify one more thing. Profit is a bonus, a cash bonus above and beyond normalized compensation for the owner. So Some owners aren't even taking salary, so we got to address their salary first. Then once we have that and the business operations are cared for, the next level is profit. we got to get profit out, a reward to the shareholder, someone that took the risk to start this business. Well, most businesses have no profit uh, ever, let alone a quarterly distribution. So what we do is we look at their history. We say, well, you had zero profit before. An ideal company would have 10% profit or 15% profit or whatever. Let's start with 1%. And let's just get there and see if we can do that for an extended period, maybe three months. Once we start building that profit muscle, now let's do two or 3%. What happens is when you take your profit first, your business starts to speak to you, meaning all of a sudden you can't pay your bills. When your business can't pay its bills by taking its profit first, that is your business telling you you can't afford your bills to sustain that profitability. There's something fundamentally flawed with your business. We have to, and there's only two ways to do it. Cut unnecessary costs, uh, which often many businesses have that. B, amplify or increase margins. 
And so the business owner has to look at that and, and, and start adjusting dynamically. And we keep on ramping up profit. So that's the essence of how we address profitability. But there's also different techniques to address the entirety of the business holistically with a profit first method. Got it. Love that. So one of your first books that, that I just loved the name back in the day was the toilet paper entrepreneur. <laughs> so was that the beginning of the, of this type of concept that eventually grew into this or, or what are, what are the takeaways out of the toilet paper entrepreneur? It was, that was my raging years. That was my teenage, uh, hormone, hormone ridden years of authorship equivalent. Um, that was my first book. And, uh, I realized at that stage, I had grown a couple companies. I had sold a couple companies, which um, put me in this area of pure arrogance. Um, I, I, I regret those days, um, but it was a big learning lesson for me. I thought, oh, just build a business and sell a business and you'll be a multimillionaire and I'll keep doing this. Um, so I conveniently on my resume say, oh, built and sold two multimillion dollar companies, Fortune 500 acquired, all true. The one thing I do leave off my resume, this is the interesting one, it's my third company. I was an angel investor. Uh, I sucked at it. I think I was the worst angel investor of all time. I, I actually now call myself the angel of death because I was so horrific at this. And I evaporated all of my personal wealth through arrogance and ignorance and had to start anew. Uh, and when I started anew, I decided to become an author. I also had a realization at that point. Um, I was far more successful when I was lacking money because the you know necessity is the mother of invention. The lack of money forced me to become innovative. I realized when I was entering a market with my new businesses, if I didn't have any connections in that market, it actually served me because I would have to become very innovative in how to access the market, offer something where I couldn't leverage friends and contacts to get in. I'd have to do something that was different. Um, if I didn't have um, education about the market and went in with a, a degree of ignorance, Again, it was my advantage because I started breaking the rules of the industry. So toilet paper entrepreneur is all about the the lack of resources and how it's actually your advantage. Yet many entrepreneurs go in and say, I don't have enough money. I don't have the experience. I can't do this. It's actually those reasons why you'll do it probably better than otherwise. Yeah. And it, it is so true. So let's, uh, I would like to create a couple of different scenarios here is we have the, let's say the newer entrepreneur that maybe they're, they're just making profit and, and that, and starting to hit some growth, but, but they're earlier in the game or earlier in the success game. Like this is really just starting to work, but what do you see or what do you notice to be some of the outside of some of the, like not paying yourself first idea, but what do you see as some of the fundamental uh, mistakes that these younger, not necessarily in age, but just younger right, in, in, in business, what are some of the most fundamental mistakes that these entrepreneurs are making that really do get in their way of having enough growth to make enough profitability and make the business worth it? Because I just see so many entrepreneurs that put so much time in their business and grind oh and they're just grinding and grinding and grinding and they're just <laughs> not turning it out. And you know, and it's, it's, it's just a form of suffering. If I just work harder, I do more and come up with the next idea, this will be the one. And they're just stuck in the grind. Yeah. I feel like I could rattle on about this for days. Um, I mean, I'll tell you something extraordinarily simple that it just shocks me. Cause I was the guy who fell for this, a logo, like just a logo. I'm like, Oh, I need to spend, I had like a thousand dollars to start my first business. I spent 990 of that dollar, that money to write, make a logo that no one gives a crap about. Except for me. I mean, it served my ego, but 
but no one can, like, I can't think of any logo, maybe Coke, that's about it, but I can't think of a logo of any company, totally irrelevant. So this misappropriation, if you will, of funds is a common fundamental flaw. Another one that comes to mind immediately is business plans. Like the traditional business plan is such a piece of garbage, it's unbelievable. A traditional business plan, because I've written them, has um, you know the network of of supporters you're going to have these influencers, key customers who are going to buy from you, usually your friends, and financial projections. The reality is those network of influencers, you know those experts and stuff, they got their own businesses and lives to run. They're not going to support you. They may get, let you associate their name, but that's about it. Your friends, often your frenemies, they tell you what you want to hear. You know, you come up with this new product or idea and they're like, I love that. I would buy that in a heartbeat. Then when you come to them six months later and say, I, I made it and would you buy it now? They're like, um, I have a, you know, I have to go to one of my kids' soccer games now. I can't talk. And they, they, they don't buy it. And, and listen, they have the greatest hearts. They want us to be encouraged and support us, but they, they flaw us because we think that we have a great idea when we have a flawed idea. They just won't tell us about the dirt on our face. That's the problem. But the worst is those financial projections. Oh my gosh. I will tell you, if anyone can predict their own financials for a new business for the next, you know, five years, that's because that's what usually financial projections are. That means you probably could predict the financial projections for a large company for at least one day. And if you could do that, go invest in the stock market. You will be a billionaire. We cannot predict the future. And we put these projections on and we actually buy into our own crap. And then they don't come true. So most business plans get hit hit the shelves right away, and then we go to the extreme polar opposite. Was now that plans on the shelf, now it's reactionary, panic mode, survival mode, sell anything to anybody, and so that's another flaw. Generalist over specialist. Oh my gosh, how many entrepreneurs say I have to do everything for everyone? Uh, captive customers. You know, if I can sell one thing to the customer, I can sell another thing and another thing and another thing. And they start diluting their ability to be masterful at any one thing. There, there's so many traps we fall into as early stage entrepreneurs. And it's often reverts to this one of two scenarios survival mode. I have no money. Desperate people do desperate things. Or I have too much money, meaning I, I, you know, took out of my 401k or life savings, invested into it. And we do dumb things like getting that logo as opposed to things that will actually generate revenue. That's great. And then what do you say, do you have any advice for those that are looking to capitalize their company as if, you know, assuming not to go the traditional rate, you know, the traditional raise, but more yeah. self-funded or not necessarily bootstrapped, but, you know, just personally capitalizing it. Yeah. So I keep tell people to heed warning because I've raised money. I've done angel rounds. I've done the VC roadshow, never raised funds that way. VC roadshows, let me just start there. You know, I had a company, we were doing $7 million in revenue. We wanted to go big. Uh, we were in computer crime investigation. We had just scored the Enron trial. Actually, my company was one of the lead investigators in it. And uh, I'm like, my partner and I, like, let's go on a roadshow and let's raise $10 million. And six months into it, going VC after VC after VC, um, and let me tell you how tough those meetings are. You walk in, there's all these guys, it's all men, just sitting there, all in their, back then with crackberries, just sitting there clicking. No one makes eye contact with you, and they do one of these hand gestures. Go, go, and it's a humiliating or humbling experience. And no one would invest in this, yet both my partner and I had diverted our attention to trying to raise money as the company's foundational strengths started to crumble. We weren't focusing on the business. So, be very careful about VC roadshows. You, you need some degree of sophistication and understanding that I didn't have. So I got kind of bulldozed to that. 
I've done angel raises. Angel raises is basically a, an accredited or wealthy investor. Uh, actually, one of my recent companies, I had an angel round come in. Um, this is usually to the tune of raising a few hundred thousand, maybe even less, to a few million. Uh, usually very wealthy people or a group of wealthy people called uh, angel groups. And I've done that. But the danger for me was OPM, other people's money. So this influx of capital came in, cash. And now I'm like, oh really should upgrade to the grade A space, you know, office space. And I need it because when I have customers come, they need to see how successful I am to trust me, which is total nonsense. But I started to justify the spend of the money. I burned through the cash faster and I felt no pain because it wasn't really my money. They were investors after all. They took on the risk. I found the best investments I've ever made, the best capital raises were my own money because every time I spent it, it was painful. It was painful. And interestingly, the less money I put into my business in the beginning, the more thoughtful I had to be about the ROI. What was actually returning money? If for every dollar I put in, was I surely getting back $2 in three or four months from now? And if not, that's a bad investment. Once my business has started getting momentum, so my current business is, is really starting to cruise now, now I'm like, oh, I'll, put it, I'll take in my own money and put in you know, another X thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into that one thing that I've proven to work. But I found that using my own money, I'm really cautious and much more deliberate in what I do. So I'm, I'm not saying raising money is not a good approach. I just know my own weaknesses and other people's money has been a trap for me and uh, it hasn't worked out too well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I love all the anecdotal stories. And for me, I've never raised money. I've always capitalized my own businesses. And That's I've awesome. Built, you That's know, awesome. Separate... I respect you so much for that. <laughs> well, mostly because I think I was just uh, too afraid to go out and try to go the whole get money game probably. But, but part of that and something else I really share with entrepreneurs, and I'm curious if you agree with this. And again, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm mostly staying out of the business side because people like you yeah. are much better at coaching to true business and entrepreneurship. I've had my own business successes, but I really like to be in the personal yeah, finance, yeah. but apply, like I said, my business knowledge and, and expertise to personal finance. Like when you do it and you think of your personal finance as a business, you'll operate your household differently. You operate it no for question. profit. You operate it for making sure that every expense is a relevant expense, assuming you're being financially um, savvy in your business as well. But where I see entrepreneurs many times is what they do is like, ah, oh, that's a business expense. So they almost overspend in their businesses because it's not like, it's like, it's not their money. It's the business's money. Like it's this yeah. other thing over here. It's like, dude, it's a hundred percent your money. So whether you're writing it off and putting in your business, if you wouldn't spend it personally for personal growth or development or this or that, like, why would you spend it in business unless it's really attached to increasing revenue or sale, you know, sales slash revenue. But it's, again, it's just this kind of flawed thinking or misthinking in a way in our businesses that I see businesses overspend all over the place. So they're overspending their business because it's a business expense. And then they're overspending in their household because it's a lifestyle expense. So you just see that people are, they're losing this, this um, realization that it's all your money. Like this is money that would be profit, you know, that profit thank in your business that you can move to your household and profit in your household, you can move to your balance sheet, you know? Yes. Thank God for you. Thank God for saying this. I mean, wow. Because shame on traditional accounting practices that tell us you can save on taxes if you spend more money, which basically says you can save $3 by spending 10 right now. It is bass backwards, yet we do it. 
And there's another thing called loss aversion, and there's different behavioral phenomena that trigger this. But basically, when you remove a pain, an immediate pain, we're more likely to do something that's illogical. That's why credit cards are such a disaster for so many people. For myself, for the longest time, actually, I live on debit cards only now. And the problem was, was when I spend on that credit card and swipe it, I don't feel the pain for 30 more days. Then I sit in my you know, home office crying, like, oh my God, how am I going to afford this? And, uh, and then repeat the pattern over again, a business expense the same way. Oh, I'm going to go out to dinner, have the business pay for it. And then we say, look at all the money I'm saving on taxes. This is wonderful. You're spending $10 to save three. You have to be fiscally responsible throughout. As we said earlier, these are conjoined twins. Spending money from the business is the same as spending your personal money. And yes, there is a tax benefit, but it does not offset the stupidity of spending money you don't have. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. So let's talk about being financially responsible in your business. So yeah. another thing I see quite often is that the business really starts growing. So now we're beyond an early stage entrepreneur. We're successful. Um, a lot of the, the books that I look at, for example, are the people that I'm working with. They're again, they're making a hundred thousand dollars a month in their business. You know, they're really million, maybe million to four million, sometimes up to 10. But what happens and what I'm noticing is the more money the business makes, the less attuned they are with their dollars. So when yeah. you're early stage, to your point, like you're looking at every dollar because you have to, or, you know, not everybody, but you know, the, in theory, but then now the business is flourishing. So now it's just money spent all over the place. And, and these entrepreneurs are not looking at their money to see where's all the money going. It's just like, oh, revenues are a hundred grand a month. So let's spend yeah. more money and not looking at every dollar. So what do you say to that as far as like the real fiscal responsibility in your business? Like what sort of practices or, or, um, do you, do you coach on that says this is the way to think and work your, your business financials? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I say is never how much you make. It's all about how much you take, right? There's a grand difference. Other popular phrase out, sayings out there, there's a uh, phrase, this is not mine, but they say revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. And uh, so how much you make versus how much you take is the same, same idea. What I've concluded is revenue to an organization is simply a stress level, which I mean by this as revenue increases, the more stress we are putting on our organization because revenue is translated to obligation. Every time I sell something revenue, I have a responsibility now to deliver that product or service to my client. That is responsibility, responsibly stress. The more revenue, the more responsibility, the more stress on my organization. And if there's no counterweight to that, which is profitability, um, <clears throat> it can throw us into a, a manic state. Like I told you, I had a business that was running $7 million in revenue. The little part I conveniently left out is when it hit $7 million, we had $500,000 of debt and it was increasing it by 100000 a month. And I was in constant panic. Uh, I remember having, I had literally had red blotches appearing on my face. I had to refinance my house just to cover payroll. It was one of the worst times of my life. But I would, you know, pound that ego when someone would say, How's your business? I'm like, Oh, we just passed seven mil. And I thought that was like cool. I put no value in it. When, whenever someone tells me the revenue of the business, I, I literally don't even hear it now. And I don't like to talk about my revenue. What I do like is when I see an entrepreneur and they say, I got a, you know, 5 million, whatever the number is, but business, I say, well, tell me about the health of your business. What kind of profits are you throwing off? And that's when you get the deer in the headlights moment. And, I, and it's a shame that the entrepreneurial game has been about top line. Top line's 
bull. Like it, it means nothing. I am far more, I'm far, far more impressed by a company that does say $500,000 in revenue and the owner taking home 200,000 versus a company that does 10 million and the owner's taking home 200,000. How did you figure out how to take home 200,000 on a $500,000 business? That's extraordinary. I want to learn from that person. So that's kind of the juxtaposition I make. Now in practicality, I, you know, I wrote the profit first system. So of course I rely on that. There's, I'm sure there's alternatives out there, but what we do is we always pre-categorize money to the benefit of the owner. The reason we started our business is inevitably, I think two reasons, it's something we're passionate about. We see how we're of service to others. Secondly, for financial freedom. I hope we started our businesses for the combination. Well, the financial component as money flows in, we allocate money to our profit. We also allocate money in the system, uh, multiple accounts. We allocate money toward the compensation of the owner. That's a normalized salary. Profit is a reward for being a shareholder. Salary is a, is a payment for the work you do. We also reserve money for the tax liability. And when tax season rolls around, this happens we're recording this right in the crux of tax season. When tax season rolls around, I over and over get caught with no money. And that's when panic would kick in. I'd be like, holy crap, we have to sell something to somebody right now. I have no money to pay taxes. I'd want to kill my accountant, shake him to death. Like, why are you doing this to me? Shoot the messenger. So we're actually going to reserve money. The business will reserve money for our tax liability for us. So when taxes are due, and this is regardless of you of an S-Corp, C-Corp, LLC, hybrid, it's, it's regardless of your business formation, the business can pay your taxes for you. So we allocate all that stuff, and then we worry about the addressing the lifestyle of the business. How much money is there left to fuel the operations? So we reverse engineer our way in. Historically, it's been how much money comes in the business, let's use that to fuel the business. Cost of goods sold, operating expenses, blah, blah, blah. No, I think that's horrible because then we wait for profit to be a leftover. So what we do now is when money comes in, we reserve profit. We make sure the owner, the most important employee the company will ever have, is being paid. We make sure our tax liabilities are addressed. Then we see what's truly left to run the business. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. All right. So maybe we can segue a little bit into clockwork now. So another thing that I come across quite often and a little bit of a follow-up to the last question is I have these entrepreneurs that are doing very well. And uh, let's say let's say they're a $5 million business. But what they're doing is their burn rate to keep that business going. They have nothing yeah. on their personal balance sheet. All of their net worth is in their business. They've yeah. been doing it now. I mean, they're made, they have a really successful business. They've been doing this maybe 15, 20 years. Yeah. Maybe they're making a million, you know, they're bringing a million or so home. They're spending a million. They're living a million dollar lifestyle. But they're still, even though they've got these high revenue numbers and they're making a decent amount of profitability, they're still stuck in the grind, meaning they have yeah. to show up every day to cover that $100,000 a month burn right. or $200,000 a month burn or whatever that burn rate is. Yeah. Meaning if they don't show up, talk about stress. And I think so many entrepreneurs, they think when they, once they get to a certain, certain stage, it's like, ah, free money, I'm free, the business is great. Yeah. And it, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, we, yeah. Just, we just kind of have this idea at some point in the future you know, this thing's just going to run itself and I'm going to be, you know, my, have my financial freedom or whatever the case is, why I've put all this, my life and blood, sweat and tears and, you know, the, the twin, my yeah. twin put it all into the business, but then they wake up and they're a certain age and they're like, I'm, I'm just tired. I don't want to be in the grind today, but I don't have a choice because I have to go cover this burn. So yeah. I think that goes into clockwork a little bit is the idea of 
of work less, make more is one, one, one thing you say there. But also yeah. I think the idea is like, how do we set up our businesses in a way that we don't have to be responsible for the grind? Like after all yeah, this time. So we, we have to get over that misconception and you nailed it, Christina. People think entrepreneurs often think that going from working uh, doing the work in the business to designing the outcomes you want, where you're overseeing the business, that transition, they think it's a switch and that, to your point. And it ain't, it's not like one day magically that you wake up and it's like, Oh, now the business is running itself. It is not a switch as a throttle. We have to slowly, deliberately, consistently build ourselves to a position where we extract ourselves from the business that the business is now designed to run itself. The other thing and why this is so important is first of all, that day will happen that you're not available for the business. Hopefully it's just because you want to slow down. You're tired. Sadly, sometimes it's because we get sick or ill or there's an accident of some sort or, or somewhere that we have to be removed from the business. And as we get removed from the business, the business starts this horrible collapse. So it is going to happen. So we need to prepare for it. The process of, uh, of, tr oh, and, and one other thing I want to talk about is, uh, the valuation of a company. Um, when you exit a company, I've only, I've had two. Um, I actually don't necessarily aspire to sell another business, but maybe it'll happen. I have to determine this though. The value of my companies was directly linked to the activity that I had within my own business. The more active and the more dependent the business was on me, the lower the valuation by uh, like tenfold. The less dependency on me, the valuation increased on the flip side by tenfold. And the reason was, as I talked to the buyers, they said, listen, Mike, if I buy your business and it's being carried on your back, the day you say, I'm fed up with this or I'm tired or get sick or die, we're out of business too. That is extremely risky when everything depends on one person. They said when a business isn't dependent on the owner, when it's turnkey and we just walk in and you walk out and the business hums along and we, just, we have predictable income and predictable profit, that's a company worth a lot of money. So I had this realization, oh my gosh, I, I got to get out of my business, not just for my own sanity, but if I want to increase the value of my organization I got to get out of it. In clockwork, I teach the process, and it is multiple steps, but I'll, I'll give you the basic overview. The key is to identify in every organization what's called the QBR. The QBR stands for Queen B role. Something identified. It's the it's the heart of the organization. It's the singular function within the organization that its survivability and thrivability most depends on. And uh, as an example. I was studying FedEx to look at a large corporate, but I, I whittled this down to small businesses like mine. But I looked at FedEx. FedEx makes a promise to all of its customers of delivering packages on time. And we have to realize all of our businesses, we make a promise. We may make multiple promises, but there's only be only can be one that's the most significant promise, delivering packages on time. Me as an author, writing entrepreneurial topics and making them simple and digestible. That's my promise. Then we have to look back and say, what's the core activity that makes that promise a reality. And uh, of course, there's many things we do, maybe hundreds or thousands of things we do, but there can only be one activity that's most influencing it. That's the QBR. So if you look at FedEx, FedEx says we'll deliver packages on time, promise. The QBR is the logistics, the movement of packages. So if, if, if FedEx says, you know what? We're gonna skip on logistics for the next week. We'll just focus on customer service and be super friendly. FedEx will be in real trouble. Packages are not being delivered now at all. Customer service is super nice, and they'll say, "Oh, sorry about that. We'll ship a pizza over to your house to, to you know, to for your inconvenience." And people are like, "What's going on?" It'll be all headline news, and no one will use FedEx again. 
Now, conversely, if FedEx says, you know what, we're going to maintain logistics better than ever before, but let's stop doing customer service for a few weeks. We're not even going to answer the phones. Will that put FedEx out of business? No. I mean, some people will complain, I can't get a hold of FedEx anymore. But the fact that packages continue to be delivered, people won't leave them. That will, it'll, they'll, they'll, it'll take a little bit of a hit, but they won't go out of business. You see, in our businesses, we don't know, we haven't identified that core competency, that core activity we're doing that delivers on our promise. And by not doing that, we constantly hit over here, over there. We need to fix this. I need to do that. And we're constantly jumping around. And then we say, why is the business so dependent on me? Why isn't the business growing? Because we haven't identified what that QBR is, the queen bee role. And that comes from beehives, by the way. I was studying how beehives scale and found out this is a consistent way that businesses scale. Identify the heart of your business by knowing what you promise, what delivers on that most. Then concentrate your efforts on buttressing that, strengthening that. And as the owner, ultimately remove yourself out, extract yourself out from serving the QBR. Because once the QBR is running on its own, other people, technology are serving it and you don't need to, it doesn't matter what you do so much. It may hurt the company a little here and there, but it'll never put you out of business. Well, it's funny just listening to you say that. I mean, it, it really seems so easy and obvious, yet it's the most difficult thing to do, isn't it? To yeah. get really in touch with what that is and stay focused on that. Because it's so easy to be distracted with all, yeah. with any number of new things or ideas we could do at our business. And we, it's as though we get farther and farther away from that QBR that is the lifeblood and the differentiator of what, what makes us different from any other similar business exactly. out there, you know? Exactly. Well, I love it. Well, just, uh, I see we're getting close to our time together. I have just a couple more questions. One, my brand is wealthy, wealthy. So money, wealth spelled wealth and then health wealth spelled wealth. So part of even, I love, I wrote down here, you said health of a business and, yeah. and part of like my story, I got really sick. So I was out of the business game for a while and had to learn this lesson that, oh, my body is my number one asset. Right. So my <laughs> personal, my personal health is a part of the life of my business. And like you said, sometimes illness can take us out of the game. So how do you factor yeah. health wealth into this? How do you take care of yourself? You're a busy entrepreneur, you're an author, you're a husband, you're a dad. Any, I mean, do you have anything to share there as far as, like you said, your health, your, your, your personal ability to thrive? Yeah, I'm very focused on health. Sometimes I'm almost a little bit manic and I got to actually slow that down because that's not healthy either. Uh, but what I do is every five days a week, I start off with exercise. So I, I wake up usually five 30 in the morning. I actually don't use an alarm clock, so it can vary 15 minutes or so, but hit, you know, hit the gym, go through a stretching routine either cardiovascular or weightlifting and then meditation. I do it over and over again. Um, and I've started blocking time to be with my family. Shamefully in the past, I thought workaholism was something to be proud of. Um, now I realize that's, that's just translates into not being able to be productive. Um, so I block time to be with family. And, and honestly, I, I think I thought I was in life to be supporting my business. Now I realize I'm in business to be supporting my life. That's been the changing perspective. Um, but if you don't have health, you don't have the energy, um, you have nothing. Um, so yeah, so health, health comes first, right? Awesome. It doesn't come last. <laughs> exactly. Well, we see so many people in the entrepreneurial game over a lifetime, they trade their health for wealth and, and, you know, wake up one day and realize, wow, I'm really sick and tired. Oh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So one more question to, to wrap us up. And first of all, before I ask the question, thank you. This has been just such an incredible conversation and, and thank you for your work. 
well, thank you. And, and thank you for your work you're doing too. We, we need these two sides to work in simpatico. And it's just nice to see that we're on a similar wavelength. Yes. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. So one question I'd like to ask all my guests to do a little myth busting. You've done a lot of myth busting here. Like there's conventional business wisdom. Like you said, it's a lot of it's just bass backwards to use your word, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's not, it just isn't working. And yeah. people just are continuing to beat their heads against the wall, kind of following some of this more conventional business and financial advice that's out there. But anything else that, that comes to mind, like a big myth you'd like to bust where just, you know, you're kind of bumping up against it every day. You just like to shout from a mountaintop, like, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm nailing it down now. This is the next book I'm writing it has no title or anything. So I'm not like promoting it, but the, the concept, uh, I think I figured out something that that's been missed. I believe historically we believe business growth. Everything I do is about entrepreneurship, but business growth is based upon certain revenue categories or employees. You know, once you achieve that first 500,000 revenue, you'll experience X or once you hit a million or 5 million or different thresholds, or maybe it's that first employee and then the fifth employee and then the 10th, and then you have 25 employees that will go through sequences. And I believe that's actually wrong. I believe there's almost a DNA encoded sequence within all business and it's a needs hierarchy that there's certain functions that need to be in place in a business kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that must come in order uh, in first before the next thing does it's a linear progression so I now believe that revenue and a number of employees is almost irrelevant to the needs a business will go through. I uh, studied micro businesses and I, I got research completed on uh, like fortune 500s and found that the needs sequence is identical um, regardless of their business size. So you have to address your needs first. And uh, here, here's the quick sequence. You got to master the process of sales to bring sustainable sales in before anything else can be addressed. Some businesses start focusing on how are we going to change the world or how are we going to make tons of money and they haven't figured out sustainable sales. So it goes sustainable sales, then predictable profit, then order and efficiency, kind of clockwork, then impact, how you're going to impact others, and then ultimately establishing a legacy. And it has to happen in that sequence. Many business owners that struggle, I notice, are skipping steps. They're like, oh, you know, I, I just need a lot of sales and I can change the world. Well, they, they're not addressing profitability, which is the cash sustainability to a business. Um, we can't sequence st step, step over steps. We have to do it in sequence. And if you do it, the right size business can find you. You don't have to achieve a million or five million or 10 million to change our world and have great impact. The right size business can find you, but you have to do it in this sequence. That's brilliant. Mike, thank you so much for your time and the wealth of information. And like I said, just keep doing the great work and, and I look forward to staying in touch and following what you do. Likewise. It's been a joy. Thanks for having me, Christina. And I'll make sure you have your own podcast. I'll put links to all the books in the show notes oh, to make sure it's really easy for everyone to connect with you. So thanks again. <laughs> thank you. If you're inspired by today's show and you would like to learn more about my money coaching, here's what I need you to do. Head over to christina.com forward slash call. That's K-R-I-S-S-T-I-N-A.com forward slash call and book an appointment to speak with me. In less than 30 minutes, we will get absolutely clear on why you're not earning enough no matter how hard you work, why you can never get ahead no matter how much you earn and what you need to know in order to finally have the time and money freedom you're working so hard for. Remember, you're not alone. 95% of Americans are one life event away from financial crisis. I will be the first person to teach you why this is the case and how to be in the other 5% that has no fear around money. 
No one can do this alone. You need expert help. I've helped everyone from modest earning professionals to those earning eight figures per year get off the financial hamster wheel and finally win the money game. I look forward to helping you too. Head over to christina.com forward slash call and book your call with me today. I'm Christina Wise. Thank you for spending your valuable attention with me today. We will meet again soon.